I did receive some actual physical hate mail. Thankfully, also, I received a lot of really interesting responses about how, like, they thought it was an amazing thing that the Catholic Church was interested in this kind of dialogue. Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I'm Troy Polidori. And this week we have a guest on, Dean Detloff from the Magnificast podcast, co-host there. And he's also a junior member at the Institute for Christian Studies who specializes in work kind of at the intersection between religion and leftist politics. So we're going to chat with him about everything from an article that he wrote about, well, it's, I guess, rhetorically, and is it inflammatory? It's uh, it's It's got a good title to it, The Catholic Case for Communism. It definitely, oh, it'll definitely trend on social media, and it did. It caused a little bit of a shitstorm, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, so we'll chat with him about that, but then we go into all kinds of other things, talking about religion, Marxism, Christianity, Protestantism, Catholic, uh, Catholicism, the social gospel. We get all kinds of resources about people to look into, liberation theology, the Pope, etc., etc., etc. And what is God? We even talk about that big grand question, the being of being. I wonder who asked that question, Austin. I, I don't know. Some asshole, probably. <laughs> some neurotic asshole who needs to know about the essence of the divine. Um, but yeah, so stick around for that. That's coming up. But before that, we do want to mention that if you want to support the podcast, you can at patreon.com slash We have several tiers of support there uh, that you can join and you can get goodies such as the monthly newsletter that we send out every month, uh, which has extra shitty minutes, extra sticky leaves, some books we're reading, articles we recommend, all that kind of good stuff. You can also get access to bonus episodes and um, the ability to join the uh, democracy, which votes on our next Patreon topic. We just released the previous episode, the last patron-sponsored topic, which was on the philosophy of psychoanalysis. So we'll be running a new poll fairly soon, so make sure you get over to patreon.com slash Dawn if you want to contribute to picking the next patron-sponsored episode. Yeah, and we have a new bonus episode that should be live actually right now by the time that this one is done. So not only is there a back catalog, but there'll be a bonus episode. And this one is on what? What would you, how do you clarify it? What will it be on? We haven't even recorded it yet. So you're talking about past tense about things that don't even exist. Are you like a B theory of time type guy? What are you doing here? I mean, you know, what is time anyway? <laughs> really? We're going to talk about something. Let's put it that something way. topical. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> it involves a topic. <laughs> it does involve a topic. Cool. Um, but also, if, as we have said, that if you leave us a review, we'll go ahead and read it out and we'll address that on air. Uh, what is it? How does it work again? If you leave like a five-star rating and then a review and you ask us a question in the review, then we'll read it out and we'll address it on air live. Yeah, dude? Pretty much. We, we have access to like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If for some reason we don't, um, answer your question on air, it's probably because there's been a glitch somewhere. So just hit us up on Twitter or wherever and uh, remind us to uh, do that because we'll absolutely do it if, um, if we see it. So with that do in mind, it. we do have a new review from Apple Podcasts from uh, Cheeseman15, or I guess he also says <laughs> his name is Josh from New Zealand. This will be a quick one because Josh asks, 
his question for us is whether we've discussed on the pod, have either of us ever read much of Mark Fisher's work? Where he is someone who really resonates with Josh's perspective in the world, and he'd be keen on our quick thoughts on his philosophy, particularly capitalist realism, but also Gothic Marxism. Um, and so I wanted to point Josh to uh, our previous episode, entire episode on Mark Fisher that we did way back in the day, and that uh, you can look that up and listen to it. And you'll get not only two minutes of talking about Mark Fisher, but like an hour and a half. So episode 25 was the one where we talked Holy about. Holy shit, that was a long time ago. Yeah, man. Long ass time ago. That was January 19th of 2017. Two and a half, mm. over two and a half years, almost three years ago. So yeah, episode 25 of Owls of Dawn, Fisher of Men is about Mark Fisher right after he uh, passed. And so we talk a lot about capitalist realism and I think a little bit about Gothic Marxism too in there. Yeah, I think it, you know, the uh, the Vampire Castle thing too. You know, he, yeah. I guess a collection of his works came out posthumously about like the old, I think it's the old K-Punk like blog and a lot of like unpublished stuff came out and I haven't been able to flip through it, but it's one of those things that's kind of on my constant to-do list that I would really like to spend some time with uh, looking through some of those essays. So I know that's out there too. Have you looked into that at all? No, no, I haven't. That sounds yeah. fun. Just don't have enough time to consume everything that I want to consume. After all these recommendations that Dean gave us, after all the stuff that I've got to do for my current research, and then of course the stuff that I just want to do, the stuff that I just want to read. I just need to download the shit like Neo does in The Matrix, where he's like, I know Kung Fu. Like, I just want to be like, I know K-Punk's back catalog. You know, just fucking <laughs> download that shit. Yeah, then you wouldn't really get the experience though. Yeah, I mean, I'll still take the time to, like, struggle through other texts, but I just want the pure, I don't know, what would it, the reception of information that I just don't have time to receive, you know? But I can both. I can struggle through the, the dense philosophical texts, but when it comes to, like, other stuff, popular fiction and maybe more, like, popular political writings, I just want to download that stuff immediately. Yeah, yeah, I get that. What you want is just infinite time. That is what I want. <laughs> Maybe when we get to heaven, Troy. Maybe that's what heaven is in my world. Just What's that great timeline? Time. Heaven's a place where nothing ever happens? <laughs> that's right. Literally. The nothing happens in heaven. Huh? Huh? Are you like doing like a Heideggerian afterlife here? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get into the show. All right. So you know what we got to do before we do anything else, dude? What is it? The shitty minute is what it is. Yeah, that's the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears this week. So, Austin, what's got you down? Are you on TikTok? I think I know the answer to this. Oh, God. <laughs> what do you think the answer is? <laughs> I think you're TikTok famous, Troy. You and your Paul Dano looks. I think that you would be a star on TikTok. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I've recently gotten into tiktok in the sense that like i flip through it i have a tiktok now um, i know because you've been sending me videos <laughs> yeah i've been sending you f come on and how funny are those fucking videos oh they're pretty great yeah <laughs> honestly i laugh so hard when i scroll through it's pretty fucking funny so in a sense i want to say that there's this is not a shitty minute this would sounds like it's going to be a sticky leaves but here's where my shitty minute comes in there's something on tiktok that i find to be so icky and i just don't know if this is a cultural phenomenon i mean i have some theories about this where it's like some more structural systemic theories about this but i just kind of want to throw it out there but it is the clamoring for fame 
And it isn't subtle, and it isn't the mantra that I kind of always tried to operate by, which is act like you've been there before. It isn't that (laughs) at all. There is nothing cool. There is nothing nonchalant about TikTok at all. It is people asking to be famous. It is people asking to be TikTok viral. And I find it so odd. Now, TikTok is a very young app, right? So for this, if there are people out there that aren't familiar with TikTok, it's a very like Zoomer generation app, I would say, or younger millennials. But there's this, there's like a slew of videos where they're making fun of people who are old. And you know what the threshold is for being old on TikTok? 25. 25 is old on TikTok. (laughs) So then, so then you have a group of people who are all like over 25 like 25 to 26, 27 year olds who are like, I know I'm old, but I'm on TikTok. And I'm like, what? Like you're embracing the idea that you are old. And then of course there's the over 40 TikTokers. And then there's the over 30 TikTokers. And they're all like, where are my over 30 TikTokers at? Let's all become friends and shit like that. So it's really strange. But the point is that it's a very young app. And so what I wonder is, is this like a symptom of like Instagram, Snapchat culture, but now in Zoomer generation that whereas maybe Instagram was you weren't explicitly asking to be famous, but nevertheless, you took your belfies and you did your like topless selfies and you did your like posed pictures uh, at the concerts or whatever so that you would become viral. But then with TikTok, all of that subtlety is thrown out the window and it's just like pleading and begging to be famous. And I can't, dude. I don't like it. It makes me so, it's so cringe to use a word that I probably shouldn't be using because it, it too, it's, is a Zoomer word. It's a TikTok word, apparently. I yeah, mean, I know other people. It's cringe for you to say that, dude. It's cringe that I use cringe. Um, but, but I don't, I just can't do it, man. And I'm somebody, for people who don't know, I am somebody who grew up like in the acting world, like always trying to at least entertain the idea that I would be famous, right? And it wasn't until I had my radical conversion into Christianity before my conversion out of Christianity, but my radical conversion into Christianity, which is what pulled me away from the acting world. I was living in Hollywood, you know? And like, I called my agent the next morning and I was like, I'm done with this. So I'm talking about somebody who my whole life was, I thought I was going to be rich and famous. I was in a rock band. I was doing the acting thing. Like I wanted, I wanted that, right? I just wanted to like bang models and be famous and shit like that. So I get the desire for it, but the way that I went about it was never like, pick me, pick me, pick me. But TikTok is all about that. And I just can't, dude. It hurts my heart. It hurts my soul. So I don't know if this is like a generational thing, if this is a cultural thing, if it's a technical thing. I don't know what's going on. But eh. you know how like there's this there's this sense that the the a generation always hates something about the like aesthetic <laughs> nature of the next generation. Yeah. But we always told ourselves that no, we're like, we're too enlightened. To, to do that. Like we're going to understand why, you know, zoomers are the way they are. And, and, you know, maybe we'll like necessarily engage in it, but we're not going to judge it. We're not going to like be disgusted by it. Cause those are all irrational, emotional responses and we're yeah. rational, enlightened individuals. And so we're not going to do that. We were wrong. Cause I'm <laughs> I, aesthetically disgusted at some of this stuff and I can't stand it. And I want to make moral judgments about it knowing full well <laughs> that I really I'm not justified in doing so, but I'm still gonna. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's a moral wrong to ask to be famous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it absolutely yep. is. And you gotta just, come on, man, be cool. Yeah, like, dude. There's something about being cool that is stupid and worthless and you shouldn't care about it, but you should also not care about it in a cool way. 
That's right. right? Like, I a mean, meta, like a meta cool about it. You have to work really hard at being nonchalant, you know? And then that will give the facade that you don't care and that you've been there before. And the act like you've been there before mantra should be your mantra. But yeah, m- m- mother- mother- motherfuckers, I read Infinite Jest, the whole fucking book. I get the new sincerity movement. I am is- for the new sincerity movement in many yes. ways, right? Like I, I, I'm into that stuff. Yes. But you can also go too far. <laughs> Sometimes you got to hold some stuff in. You know? That's right. You got to be mysterious, man. There's no mystery. That's what it is. There's no fucking <laughs> mystery. You, and that's why they're not fucking. And that's why everybody's single and they're complaining about being single and they're not fucking because it's the mystery that makes it so that like the people attract and want to bang. You know? I figured it out. There's a libidinal problem with TikTok. That is the issue. Yeah, you're probably wrong about the sex thing, but I'm going to go with it because it fits the <laughs> argument. <laughs> oh, but yeah, man. I, but I will say this. With that said, with my with, – with, with like my skin literally crawls when I see how like eager people are to be famous. With all of that, I honestly have not laughed as hard as I have as like just scrolling through <laughs> some of this shit on TikTok, man. Like – it's ridiculous. I was hanging with a friend the other night and we just were like laying down, just scrolling through the fucking feed, just or the page, the, the the for you page, and we were just cracking up at some of the shit, you know? And then there are some pages that are just fantastic, like Lad Bible. There I mean it's just a pretty funny company anyway, but their TikTok page is great. It is fucking hilarious. And I don't know, man, it also with all of this being said, it also does reveal the ubiquity of creativity. Which is another issue as well. I think there's like some interesting points of tension here. It's interesting to see how many people are creative. It's interesting that creativity and that people being creators has become like this ubiquitous category of what it means to be like a human in late capitalism. But then simultaneously does that kind of like degrade artistic expression? Does that degrade what creativity is? I don't know. Like does it cheapen it and that it all just becomes like digital creation and it's mimetic and um, – you know, so I think there's there there are like two ways that you can analyze, or m- multiple ways, but there are at least two ways that you can analyze this as being a good or a bad. But it is interesting just to see how fucking creative people are, you know, and how funny people are. Like everyone's funny. It's fucking Dude, weird, man. The best part of the internet is that every joke that exists in the world you get to hear about. Like all the best ones. Like that's just such an amazing opportunity, you know. Yeah. Like you remember back in, in like 2010, 2011 when Twitter was just great jokes one after the other and that was it. It wasn't just like like a continuous hellscape about how the world's ending. Mm-hmm. But just like creativity and just pithy little tweets over and over mm-hmm. again. I remember like one of my favorite parts of the whole internet and the history of the internet was this guy named Doc Funk. And he used to I think he worked for the government cuz he like went on some like CAA black ops shit and disappeared from the whole internet. But he used to take make memes about NBA basketball. Mm-hmm. And they were the funniest shit you ever saw. And he would just do like every single game, get pictures and make memes out of them. And he was just <laughs> the most hilarious person. He had this whole running gag where Hito Turkoglu, who was a Turkish basketball player um, for the Orlando Magic back in those days, who now like works for Erdogan and is like a traitor to like the world. Um, but he used to like make this joke that, that Turkoglu had a love affair with the basketball. And I shit you not, every single game that Turkoglu played, there was a, a a camera shot that the NBA or whatever would post where he would look at the basketball like he's looking at a long lost love. 
every <laughs> single game. And this guy found all of them and had these new little little um, memes he could make out of them. And they're just like, holy shit, man. Like, people can spend all their time doing this dumb shit, which is so funny and so creative, and I can enjoy it. This is the most brilliant like technology that's ever been created. Yeah. That's the part of the internet that we have killed. That's what TikTok is, though, man. But there's snippet. It, it, it reappears. Like, like the gopher, right? It reappears every once in a while. That's somewhere. right. That's right. Yeah. And I think TikTok is kind of that. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular, too. There's like a pure positivity in TikTok. It's very rare that you get people that are like critiquing politics or that are like angry. You get more of like positive buildup affirmation kind of stuff that is socially and politically geared. But you don't often get like, I mean, and there's like, of course, the like the depression element as well. But even that is still affirming and it's like very encouraging where people come along and they're like, yeah, we're all kind of struggling through what it means to be human in late capitalism, except it doesn't have that like political element to it. It's just much more like, yeah, do you and we love you. So there's this positivity element to it, which can both be good and bad, but it is just very like up, uh, edifying. It's 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 upbuilding rather than like where Twitter is just like fucking negative. I can just feel the snark and the like sarcasm and the anger and the bitterness and the resentment on most tweets you know whereas you don't really get that with tiktok yet yet (laughs) you don't get it yet yeah 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 so yeah that's it act like you've been there before motherfuckers all right sweet so our guest for this week as i said at the top of the show is dean detloff who is a junior member at the Institute for Christian Studies who specializes at the intersection of religion and leftist politics. And he's also the co-host of the Magnificast, along with Matt. And is it Bernico? Is yeah. Is that what his last name? That's right. Bernico. And Matt was maybe going to join us this week, but he's not feeling so great. So send your love, prayers, whatever it is that you do out to uh, out to Matt as well. But it's a great podcast for those of you that aren't familiar with it. So you should check that shit out. But welcome, Dean. Yeah, thanks. Good to be here. And yeah, Matt sends his uh, regrets. He would he would love to be here too, but unfortunately, just feeling down under the weather. I hate when that shit happens. I, I had a question. So you kind of come from a Catholic background, or I guess you're you're still Catholic, not even from a Catholic Catholic background. Does yeah. he come from an evangelical background? Um, yeah, like uh, we both had kind of like a weird stay in evangelicalism, I guess. Um, okay. And Matt his his brand of it growing up um was part of like the church of the nazarene and he is okay. uh he teaches at a methodist school or um is kind of in, involved in some ways in a methodist tradition now so adjacent to evangelicalism but more kind of like in a, a more mainline sort of protestant thing now ah gotcha 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 mm-hmm. and i mean i don't know if this is putting you on the spot but i kind of just corrected myself a minute ago and it's kind of interesting i don't know you know there's the term ex-evangelical yeah. that is really common online i mean what would what would like a, a lapsed i mean because you have a lapsed catholic but what would like a catholic who is still catholic but kind of goes hardcore left i mean do you just call yourself a catholic or do you say like i'm a, a yeah, estranged I'm, catholic a heterodox no, catholic or i'm no? a re- i'm a you know uh, a regular old Catholic, I go to mass and I uh, hang out with nuns and priests and all the rest of it. And the <laughs> Jesuits pay some of my bills. And yeah, um, you know, it's <laughs> it's definitely weirder to be a, a lefty type Catholic in some ways in um, in Canada or the U.S. But uh, at the same time, you know, there's literally millions and millions of uh, lefty Catholics around the world who are probably more lefty more lefty than I am. Even so, uh, yeah, it's a big a big church. Yeah, I mean, you have the been genius temp- of the word Catholic, right? I mean, yeah. it's infinitely fungible. Right. 
That's right. If you're an evangelical, you got to like evangelize, you know, you got to like show your faith and shit like that. Like you kind of put in a little bit of a box. The Catholic, you can just do whatever you want with it for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a little more complicated, but yes, there's a, there's much more um, elasticity, I guess, in the, in the tradition than people often realize, I guess. What about that social gospel though? Like, see, the Catholics have this rich tradition of, you know, being adjacent to or even sort of embracing communist leftist principles. But, you know, the Protestant church has Walter Rauschenbusch. Come yeah. on. And even more, uh, the Protestant church has full-blown uh, communist pastors and, and ministers. Uh, some of the most important, uh, well, one of the most important communists in the history of Canada is this guy named Reverend A.E. Smith, who was a Methodist. Um, he sort of slowly drifted away, but, uh, he was a, a radical social mm. gospel guy and, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of more interesting stuff going on in Protestantism too, than people sometimes realize. Totally. So I, I know that Protestants talk about the fear of, of people who return to Rome, right. As being like this Protestant <laughs> move into Catholicism. Is right. there a similar weird term or fear for Catholics who turn to Protestantism to save their faith? <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, there are, there's definitely, there are like whole ministries within the Catholic church that their whole, you know, shtick, I guess, is like trying to uh, bring, bring people back home to Rome or whatever. Um, and what will they call that stealing sheep? Something like that? <laughs> Maybe. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, when I kind of like took a break is how I like to say it uh, from Catholicism and kind of went into some other uh, Christian traditions for a bit. Um, you know, nobody seemed to mind <laughs> when I when I came back. Uh, it was kind of like people were like, oh, we you know didn't know you were gone. So I'm not sure. Uh, I you know <laughs> the pressure is there in in some places, but thankfully not the kind of Catholic circles that I find myself in. <laughs> God, that prodigal son motif just yeah. haunts me as a as a specter <laughs> perpetually. You know, like I think I'm still perceived as the prodigal in most of my family uh, and I'm sure my background and friends. We both went to a private university, private Christian university for undergrad, which is where we met. So I'm pretty sure all the people that follow me on social media and maybe some of them that listen to the podcast would view me as a prodigal that is just always at the edge, that hasn't quite sure. reached, you know, the that, that point of squalor where I'm laying with pigs and shit like that. But one day <laughs> I will return. Yeah, yeah. Well, you never know. I Yeah, I also went to an evangelical uh, undergraduate school so i know the type for sure um and i think yeah, yeah. you know having gone back to rome uh there are some who probably still see me as a, a prodigal in that sense too uh waiting for me to go back to i don't know jesus camp or something but too late i'm not going back <laughs> you know it, uh we had a friend in undergrad named dave who got really into liturgy and got really into uh, kind of um, the Catholic ceremony, but also the Orthodox Church when mm -hmm. we were, and and then, and, and, but then I think he, he kind of, he didn't go fully all the way. And so what he kind of embraced was more like high church stuff, like Presbyterian, mm. uh, like o OP kind of stuff, Orthodox Presbyterian church stuff for people listening, um, like that kind of thing, or like the PCA or something like that. Whereas, uh, I don't know, I, I've actually kind of been feeling a little bit of that stirring as well lately. Troy, did you ever have that? Yeah, yeah, I had a time where I was reading Orthodox uh, theologians and getting them to talk about the Trinity nonstop and everything's about the Trinity and Trinitarian relationships, intercession, all that stuff. So, yeah, I had that for a time. Yeah, yeah. Dean, what do you think? I think every, everybody who does like academic theological work and is coming from an evangelical background where there's none of that stuff starts to yearn for it a bit. Yeah, what do you think it is? Like, why do you think we yearn for it a little bit? What do you think, Dean? Yeah. <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know. I, Psychoanalyze I mean, our Protestantism. Yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, my situation was a bit strange because, you know, 
I grew up Catholic, like my parents were Catholic, but they were not, they were like very um, chill about it, I guess. Um, you know, like to this day, I, I'm the only person in my family who goes to any kind of church regularly at all, let alone, you know, the Catholic church. Um, mm. So I think for me, it was just like, it, I got to a point in my life where I kind of felt for a number of reasons, if I was going to keep on being invested in Christianity, I would just sort of go back to the place I came from. And, you know, there's less paperwork that way. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know, like my own experience of being an evangelical and being surrounded by evangelicals for uh, a significant amount of time. I think that, you know, if you if you take the time to think really, really hard about Christianity, eventually you're going to discover that um, actually just the Bible and you or just Jesus and you um, isn't quite enough. And like, in fact, there are lots of people, you know, for a couple thousand years who have been thinking really hard about that and they didn't seem to come mm. to the same conclusions that evangelicals did. So at least in some respect, I, th- I, I, I imagine, you know, at some point you kind of uh start to feel a certain disconnect between the things that you're being told that you should think about uh in in evangelical christianity like reading the bible and thinking about you know your relationship with jesus and then also going going and seeking where other people have done that before you and yeah it's hard to maintain that for very long i think Mm. yeah Yeah, there was strangely a lot of the people i think we talked about or talked to in our own evangelical circles used to use that same logic as evidence for why evangelicalism was special and unique Right. I remember one one um, seminary student, I think, telling me one time that he was so perplexed and amazed at how the second generation from the apostles already had everything wrong, <laughs> and that he's so glad that he's been shown the light that even they were incapable of seeing, even though they were so close to the apostles, and that he, mm-hmm. that was actually he wasn't being ironic. It sounds like you're saying that ironically, right? But no, that was actually a, an evidence of his uniqueness of his faith, uh. which was amazing to me. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Dean, Dean, do you know the Bible Answer Man, Hank Hanegraaff? I do. Yeah, not yeah, personally, you know, but yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 no, yeah, no of him, I guess. But, you know, he recently <laughs> converted and came out uh, as came out uh, as Orthodox, yeah? Huh. And this was a huge fucking scandal. Like, there were journal articles written, Christianity Today pieces about how he had fallen away and that he's, like, rejecting the faith and that— because, you know, I mean, Protestants oftentimes view even Catholics as not being saved because yeah. you worship Mary and you worship saints and so you're idolaters. Right. And so uh, it's kind of like this this uh, traditional slide into a type of uh, polytheism or something like that. It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't heard that, um, but that is very fascinating. Yeah, I know. We used to hear that all the time, and it's, I'm so glad that you brought that up, Troy, that little anecdote, because I used to think that, right? I used to think that, like, that that's why the Dark Ages were the Dark Ages, oh, right. because, you know, God had lifted his hand, but then, of course, <laughs> Luther and Calvin come, and they reclaim the centrality of the Bible, and so then God's grace, his common grace, then sort of flows more freely because we've reclaimed the quote-unquote truth of the gospel, and that had cultural benefits and things like that, which is why America was so blessed, because they were Protestant, not Catholic, but if you look at Catholic Europe, they're the ones who got ravaged by the Black Plague and shit like that, and that was all a consequence, right, of kind of God's hand being lifted because people were turning away from it and just worshiping the church, the Pope, Mary, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. I, yeah I the confirmation say, uh, bias knows no bounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit, man. <laughs> uh, I, I had heard, yeah, plenty of the Protestant historiography about uh, Catholicism, but I hadn't heard the thing about a uh, Hanegraaff. Um, yeah. 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 That's really fascinating. It's pretty new. Yeah. Troy, within the last two years, I'd say. What is? The Hank Hanegraaff's conversion to Orthodoxy. I'm actually not sure I'd even heard of that. Maybe I have. Oh, yeah. I have like an inkling that I've heard that. But yeah. I can't remember. 
Yeah, I, I'm, I, I don't know. Um, but anyway, without us just sitting here pondering over the confusions that have existed <laughs> in the history between these things, um, Dean, you wrote a pretty rad little article recently, and um, it caused a little bit of a shitstorm online, I guess we could say. Yeah? Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> so uh, can you tell people about America Magazine um, and yeah. then about what your piece uh, is called and what you kind of put forth as a, a case? Yeah, so um, America Magazine is a Jesuit publication. Uh, they're based in New York City, a uh, really historic magazine. You know, like people like Dorothy Day have written for it um, in her lifetime and Herbert McCabe and um, all kinds of very significant folks. Um, but I, uh, I write as a journalist for them pretty regularly, um, but it's mostly reporting. And mm. um, yeah, uh, to make a really long story short, somehow it so happened that they allowed me to write this feature article for them um, that wasn't so much reporting, but uh, kind of just making, well, they titled the article, uh, The Catholic Case for Communism. Um, not my headline, but it grabs some attention, I think, I hope. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, they so my editors kind of took a chance on it, and um, it was an amazing thing. They had written an editorial to accompany it, uh, saying that for America's whole existence, they were largely a, an anti-communist um, publication, uh, or at least, you know, not exactly uh, pro-communist by any stretch. And, and they're not now. But uh, in any case, they yeah, they were saying, you know, we're, we're, we're at least kind of allowing this voice to be heard or this opinion to be heard mm -hmm. in the in the pages of the, of the magazine. And um, it was a real kind of, you know, affirmation of their commitment to dialogue and to saying that Catholics do have a wide range of opinions about capitalism and also its alternatives. Um, and that's I think that's great. You know, lots of people are kind of doing the all sides thing. And sometimes that drives me up the wall. But uh, kudos to America mm -hmm. Magazine for actually, I guess, <laughs> finding one of the sides that isn't usually included in that all and allowing me to articulate it. So I wrote this short article about um, communism and just kind of trying to uh, um, make a certain appeal to why Catholics in particular um, have some reasons to maybe give communism a second look and also bring it to our attention that, in fact, historically, many Catholics have already uh, called themselves communists or participated in communism around the world. Mm. Um, and it's important that we at least find a way to understand that and, and enter into that. And I admit in the article that I myself is, am a communist and a Catholic. And uh, yeah, as you said, that uh, created a certain amount of buzz <laughs> around the internet mm. yeah yeah what was like the most typical back uh, like i guess two or three points of backlash that you experienced yeah um i mean there's a lot of tropes about communism and a lot of really convenient anti-communist uh lines that people uh are able to recycle without a whole lot of effort and those definitely come out mm. you know for for instance like uh, the body count of communism is always a thing that comes up and people hmm. say, you know, how could you possibly argue for this thing in light of, uh, you know, a hundred million people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just some kind of, of, uh, number that, that ends up standing in for all kinds of historical things. Um, so that's like one, one thing that, co that always comes up. Um, the second that usually comes up is that, uh, well, communism is a, a materialist or an atheist kind of philosophy mm. and, uh, oh, how foolish you must be to not realize that or something. And, uh, the third is um, the Catholic Church on a number of occasions has 
uh, either distanced itself from communism or explicitly denounced it or condemned it um, in certain papal exhortations and that sort of a thing. And so, you know, uh, how could you have missed this? So those are kind of the three things that usually come out. Mm. Um, But yeah, (laughs) most of the time, it's just an excuse for somebody to, you know, write a column about how much they still don't like communism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. The body count argument, and I'm sure... Troy can back me up on this. I, I, we used to hear it all the time. I mean, I even I used to do a lot of street preaching and evangelism myself and like, I guess, short term missionary stuff. So you get into these conversations all the time. And, and I think we were kind of taught, I was definitely taught to use this argument. And we tied the body count argument to a kind of metaphysics, right? That yeah. communism is a materialist philosophy. And because it's a materialist philosophy, it doesn't have any moral grounding using, I guess, the C.S. Lewis moral argument for the existence of God. And so therefore, because there's no metaphysical grounding for right and wrong, then you can justify anything insofar as it maximizes your ends or whatever. And therefore, you can murder a bunch of people and it's fine. That is why we need to have some kind of moral metaphysical foundation. That's why God's law – or that's like proof of God's law – that God God's law is actually there because we think of these horrific things as being horrific. Therefore, God must be real. Objective morality and objective truth must be real, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the argument kind of flows like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for go. sure. I mean, that definitely comes out, right? And there's a, a always a one-to-one correlation, which conveniently ignores, obviously, the, the many, many <laughs> bodies that have, um, you know, uh, fallen at the hands of people who do presumably have good metaphysics or something. But, you know, the, it's it's a tough, <laughs> tough ah, thing to get that just, point they, across. They were backsliding, Dean. <laughs> That's ah. right. I don't know about you guys, but I've never known anybody to have perfect metaphysics who wasn't also perfectly moral. So... <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, I know. Um, So what were some of the positive things that you got back or maybe some of the surprising things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I did receive, I should say, some actual physical hate mail um, in my mailbox, which is a pretty wild thing. Um, But thankfully, also, I I received a lot of uh, really interesting and and kind of, I don't know, people like coming out of the woodwork uh, responses like... um, some like extremely old communists uh, sent me a bunch of emails about how like mm. you know they just thought it was an amazing thing that uh, the Catholic Church was interested in this kind of dialogue in um, especially in in North America in particular um, excluding Mexico you know the U.S. and Canada um, and uh, yeah like that was really really interesting um, to kind of hear some of those perspectives and. Uh, even among certain Catholics, too, uh, some people had defended the article in interesting ways by saying, look, I'm not a communist, but uh, we can't really deny that this is uh, one position that is motivated by a certain moral imagination. And shouldn't we see if there is, you know, points of contact or kind of Venn diagram um, relationships between these two things? And uh, mm. some of those people who had kind of been willing to go there, I guess, had surprised me. And um, I was happy to see that, that there was room for some nuance in that conversation. And that's really what I, I think ultimately had hoped to accomplish with it. I think once someone says, I'm not a communist, but the spirit's basically softening their heart. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, Troy, did you have anything in particular that you wanted to use to dive into the article or anything that you wanted to bring up initially? Yeah. I mean, this might be something I wanted to address later, but might as well go for it now. Um, the kind of byline or like, uh, the first line, at least, of the article, you quote uh, Dorothy Day saying, it is when the communists are good that they are dangerous. Mm. And I love that you started with that. Um, because 
this is called you called the or the the editors called it a Catholic case or the Catholic case for communism. But it seems like as much as there is references to sort of like the Catholic religious case for um, communism, it's also really essentially a moral case for communism. It kind of yeah. almost takes those as being equivalent or at least coming to the same conclusion or like extensionally equivalent or something. Mm. And I, I wanted to kind of get your, your thoughts about how you thought the, the Catholic case and the moral case were in some sense are strongly related. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you're right. Uh, I mean, I I appeal more to kind of moral arguments or at least mm. some some kind of uh, intuitions that I hope other people share that, you know, uh, when you hear, for instance, that like um, Jeff Bezos is the richest person in the whole world, but like people who work in Amazon warehouses are forced to like urinate in bottles, you know, like I'm hoping mm. when I when I sit when I mentioned that anecdote in the article that I'm appealing to somebody's kind of moral intuitions that okay there's something wrong here you know um mm. and it's true like i don't i don't appeal to a whole lot of uh specifically catholic things there is a moment when i i draw some parallels between the communist manifesto and some things pope francis has said um but it's that appeal to dorothy day in particular that i think i was looking to have a way in you know she's on her on the way to canonization she'll be a saint soon and it's like well if she is kind of willing to have this uh interesting perspective on communism and even willing to develop herself um then shouldn't we at least you know think twice about what we think about communism and what we think it could be etc um so yeah you know I, I personally i wouldn't want to elide catholicism and moralism there's lots of people who are you know morally good or morally better than many Catholics that I know, all that kind of thing. Um, but just by virtue of the context and where it appears in America magazine, um, it's important to kind of draw on that Catholic imagination and try to invite Catholics to reconsider things using, I guess, their own moral intuitions and these Catholic authorities that they think are really important, like the Pope or Dorothy Day. Do you think it'd be correct to say that in any sense in which there is a Catholic case for communism, that Catholic case is also essentially moral, even though the moral scope is probably bigger than just the Catholic case. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's like, what what would be, you know, it would always be difficult to say what's the Catholic X or Y, you know, like, um, because Catholicism is a, a huge thing. It's And it's more than um, what a bishop says or a layperson says or even what the Pope says. You know, it's it's a, a tradition in motion, always in motion. And, if, I, you know, I, I, would never, I wouldn't want to say something as loose as Catholicism is whatever a Catholic says it is. I don't think that's true. But um, I do think that the Catholic Church is, you know, not just what, uh, the most conservative pieces of it say that it is or something like that. And so uh, all traditions are these things that are that have to be negotiated and things that you're also intervening in all the time, whether you say that you are or not, whether you admit it or not. And so in some ways, I guess this is sort of like my Catholic case for communism. And, you know, I'm, I'm drawing in parts of my own imagination that that mm. are formed by this tradition. And I, I think resonant with it and extending it and hoping that maybe that connects with someone else who's also Catholic or, or could, or, you know, not, not Catholic too, but uh, just people who share those similar kinds of like um, traditional significant points of reference or something like that. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. You know, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in America, I think it's in the constitution that the most conservative member of a group gets to define the nature. Of the <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> it's interesting too, because there almost seems to be a, a 
like an insurpassable point of tension between some like hard-lined materialist Marxists who want to eschew any morality whatsoever from the Marxist critique of political economy. And then the argument that you're making, which is kind of like, I almost feel like what you're saying is, hey guys, I'm not making a universal argument for communism. I'm trying to introduce these ideas to people who are already inclined in a particular moral or ethical bent, right? And then what I wonder is, is that would you not get maybe a hardline Marxist that would read your critique and be like, ah, this is just total moralism and Marx was contrary to moralism. Like he's absolutely critical of the moralism uh, of religion and, you know, all critique begins with the critique of religion kind of thing. So I wonder like how would you navigate that, that supposed gap, you know? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, uh, one one thing that I think is kind of interesting about my own relationship to Marxism is uh, I became sympathetic to Marx by first encountering uh, the earlier Marx, which is uh, mm. earlier Marx's earlier writings are full of um, like very uh, moving prose and very um, well, appeals to to moral sensibilities. Um, it, it's not that Marx is necessarily a moralist, but uh, he is trying to get you to um, like his rhetoric is trying to get you to judge a, a situation under capitalism as immoral or somehow, mm. you know, an, an affront to what we should think is good. Um, even by, you know, bourgeois standards or something like that. Um, so in that sense, uh, I have a soft spot for thinking about Marx and in a, in a kind of moral frame, framework. But that being said, now that I've, I'm down the road quite a ways in terms of my participation, even in, in Marxist groups, um, I, uh, these days, the, I think my participation in a Christian tradition very broadly construed uh, gives me the kind of moral um, formation that I find really useful. But when I read Marx, and especially when I read something like Capital, uh, I'm not really looking for moral uh, arguments. What I'm looking for is how these pieces go together. You know, it's the scientific mm. kind of project that uh, sometimes I think calling Marxism a science is bad, but uh, where it's good is to say what Marx is trying to do is actually say, all right, you know, I hope that you feel like capitalism is bad, but look, this is what it's actually doing. And when you look mm. at that, like, that's rough. So it, I, do, I don't get into that in this piece because, you know, it's it's trying to do something and appeal to a certain um, a certain readership. Uh, but in my own kind of like my own participation in the Marxist tradition, it's the 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 actually the not moral parts that kind of really get me going or the things that I find really valuable. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how far I would take this, but I like to make a distinction between morality and ethics. And in Maybe I'm splitting hairs, but uh, I guess I would say that morality tends to be tied to some kind of absolute or metaphysical uh, singularity or point from which everything issues, whereas ethics can be opened up broadly. I mean, Nietzsche's system is an ethical system even in Beyond Good and Evil, right? He's still thinking about how should we think through things, how should we understand truth, how should we organize life, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that for me, I'm 100% okay with thinking of Marx as always, even from his first essay where he writes about the union of Christ, right, all the way through to uh, cap the unfinished works of capital as being an ethical system, even if we also want to add that maybe there's like a romantic morality that's uh, present in the early works that kind of dissipates a little bit. But he's also... He's expanding on a lot of the works of classic political classical political economy, which is thoroughly ethical. You know, the division of labor, the critique of the division of labor, is an ethical concern based on Adam Smith's, uh, or I'm sorry, based on Marx's critique of Adam Smith's 
conception of uh, what this does to create efficiencies. And then in Mark's term, it not only creates efficiencies for capital, but it also kind of fractures, if you will, the romanticism of the craftsman, right? So there is a kind of romanticism even in that critique of political economy. It's just, like you say, it kind of takes more of an analytical turn, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's totally fair, right? I, like, Marx wouldn't care about how capitalism worked if he didn't have a, a political interest right. and, and also an ethical right. interest. Um, yeah, he's not yeah. like a mathematician kind of abstractly uh, working out the pieces. So, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the, the moral piece for me, I guess, is just like, you can't like, you can't walk into a room full of Catholics and be like, hey, here's what Marx thinks about commodities and like expect people to listen. <laughs> right. Cause like they won't, I, I wouldn't either. Like, yeah, that's but have you tried though, Dean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, maybe you could get someone to say, all right, well, don't you think that this situation in front of you is something that you don't like? And, uh, Hey, why don't we think about how there might be reasons that that's like it. And it's not just because bosses are bad people or good people. It's because bosses are compelled to act in certain ways because the way, you know, the economy works. So, uh, yeah, it's all, all about uh, strategic steps along the way, I guess. Mm, mm. I'm curious, Dean. Um, I know that in you know Catholicism, there's a strong tradition and strain of sort of communitarian thinking. Do, do you ever get any um, pushback on the idea that you don't need to have this sort of secular materialistic philosophy to um, marry to Catholicism in some sense? That's just a weird marriage, and instead you should go back to like communitarian strands of thinking in, in Catholic history to get yeah. a similar result. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's lots of folks trying that um, from a number of angles and, you know, some are better than others. But uh, for me, it, it always comes down to like, I can understand the appeal of some of these things. Like when people look to the Catholic worker, for instance, which is a truly amazing um, thing, a truly amazing phenomenon in the world, uh, they not everyone does this, but some people, when they engage that tradition, what they like about it is that it is a, a radical tradition that is decidedly not Marxist or, you know, it is it's anarchist in some ways, but it's ultimately looking at like um, the Bible and the Catholic tradition more than it is looking at Proudhon and Kropotkin, even if they you know want to read those folks. And uh, my kind of response to all that is usually just the same as, I guess, my general kind of disagreements with things like anarchism or things that aren't Marxist, I guess, to be frank, which is, you know, uh, yeah, these are these are some good judgments. Um, but at the end of the day, like the 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 scale of capitalism as we know it today, which is, you know, a system that is destroying the whole planet, um, that's the scale of that problem is not going to be solved by uh, these small communities of um, these different ways of life, beautiful though they are, and, and as good as they are, you know, like, I don't think people should like quit doing them or something. Um, but at the end of the day, we we don't really have time to like convince everybody that Catholic social teaching is is the right way to go or something like that. Um, and even if we did, we would still be left with the contradictions of capitalism. So that's kind of the, yeah, the general uh, response in a nutshell for me, I suppose. Well, I'm offended, and I feel like Troy contacted you ahead of time and said that you were going to talk <laughs> shit about the thing that makes my soul stir, which is that I want to go live in my intentional community in the mountains and start my <laughs> my hipster homebrew cigar smoking uh, home church. But uh, no, no. I mean, go ahead, uh, but just uh, know <laughs> that capitalism is still going to be out there, ready to get you. Yeah, I honestly, it, and this is kind of more of just me venting frustrations. Is I I constantly am struggling between 
this issue of kind of like the universal and the particular maybe, right? And I know that the bifurcation of those two is maybe itself uh, a false bifurcation and that they're obviously, even even in like proper Hegelian terms, that the realization of the universal comes through the particular and, and that there's an instantiation of the universal in the particular, right? The singular universal kind of thing. And so one of the things that I've been kind of maybe in my in my post-evangelical turn, what I've been really interested in is is how to kind of think through, okay, you've got the universality of uh, like a critique of political economy uh, in a, a Marxist or post-Marxist frame, but then simultaneously you have like post-colonial theory, right? And post-colonial theory oftentimes can be accused of being overly particular, but without the without the kind of pitfalls of what you're talking about, like the anarchism, intentional community kind of thing. But it can focus on the particular sometimes to a point where it can just be pure deconstruction and fracturing, and it doesn't, uh, and it doesn't seem to have the ammunition to really address the kind of more global set of concerns. And that's kind of where my mind is right now. Is like, and I don't really know, I, I don't really have any like settled thoughts on this. Um, but I'm kind of working through that point of tension because, because in my soul it does stir when I think about you know being in the mountains and fishing and hiking and that that romantic vision. But at the same time. Um, you know, I think I would feel an immense amount of guilt if I, if I did kind of unplug, you know, because I would be kind of detaching almost from that kind of more universal element. And so for me, there's like kind of almost like a, a moral or ethical demand that I feel like is constantly haunting me as well. I don't know if you guys feel that. Yeah. I mean, universality is a wild thing because, uh, universality is so often an excuse to exclude <laughs> uh, other people. The particular, right? Yeah, um, which and, is why, which is why, like the post-colonial theory has intrigued me because it, you know, we had George Chicarello Mar on here yeah. in his book "Decolonizing Dialectics," but it's precisely critical of the of the Eurocentrism of the Hegelian universality, right? Right. Um, but then you can kind of go to the other end. You know, I just. Uh, I did a bonus episode for this podcast, and I spoke at a book launch a couple weeks ago for a book called Pluriverse, which is all about like post-developmental theory, and it draws a lot on post-colonial theory, decolonizing capitalism, etc. And it can sometimes veer into that just radical fracturing, that that deconstruction of uh, the global per se, the deconstruction of like you know the sustainable development goals and things like that. And then in so doing, it can kind of just leave you with what uh, we talked about previously when we worked through a book by Sergei Prozorov called Passive Nihilism, where it's just all you have are individual local communities and voices, but that there is no universalizing singular point that allows us to create a true global politics. And that tension is, I just, it's so difficult for me to work through. Yeah, it's it's a tension for all of us. You know, it's the, it's the, the yeah. question of the moment in some ways. Um, but I think for me, it always comes down to the good, the good Marxist point is um, people come together in the struggle. That's where uh, I don't know if I would call it a universality, but like there's a, an equalization of, of things that happen when people are struggling for liberation. Um, obviously, Marxists are interested in the class angle of that, but mo I, I think every good communist is worth their salt, and there are a lot of them that are not. Um, but the good ones, 
do recognize that, you know, it's, it doesn't take away from the communist horizon to talk about the specific oppression that women uh, face or indigenous folks or people of color, all that kind of a thing. Like these are all pieces of, of a system of exploitation. Um, the biggest question is, okay, you know, if we address these, these other kinds of inequalities and we absolutely should, um, at the end of it, we at some point are going to have to talk about how to organize, you know, how we work. And that's where <laughs> I think Marxists can help. Um, but it doesn't do us any good to sort of presume that like, uh, the Marxist analysis of class is ultimately going to be the, uh, the one thing that finally obliterates all the bad differences in the world. Um, to <laughs> me, that's kind of a, a repetition of exactly what's bad about Christianity in many respects. Um, so mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah. Go ahead, Troy. Okay. I have a question. It's kind of general and maybe it sounds more pithy than it actually is, but um, it sounds in some sense like we've been talking a bit about what what Marxism and communism can do for Christianity or for Catholicism. Um, do you think that there's also something that Catholicism or Christianity in general can do for Marxist communists or socialists? I love this question, by the way. <laughs> you would, it's a, Austin. It's a good one. Because <laughs> it's ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a question I think about a lot um, because I have one foot in both of these spaces. Um, you know, I think on the one hand, yes, and on the one hand, no. Uh, on the, I'll start with the no. Uh, where I don't think that Christians can contribute something unique is in presuming that, like, you, you have to be a Christian or you have to think in a Christian way in order to be, like, a true communist or think about liberation in a true ultimate sense. Um I have my suspicions about that kind of move, uh, which happens a lot. Um, but on the yes side, you know, what can Christians contribute to this kind of struggle? A kind of um, recognition of the many different ways that people can be humans in a, in a liberated situation. Um, you know, there are Christians in communist states and communist situations who have done a lot of thinking themselves about this. Uh, K.H. Ting is a, a bishop in China. He, he died not long ago. Um, but this was one of his primary concerns was, you know, I, I live in a supposedly liberated zone of, of this, this place. What does it mean to be a Christian here? Um, that's different than what it means to be a, a, even a liberation theologian in Brazil, um, and certainly different from what it means to be a Christian participating with communists at a protest in, in Canada or something like that. Um, and I think, you know, these are all kinds of things that Christians are going to have to figure out <laughs> in the midst of all those struggles. Um, at the end of the day, for me, what at least helps me in terms of being a, a Christian in these kind of um, spaces is an attention to the least of these, always a preferential option for the poor, as liberation yeah. theologians say it. Um, and that's something that sometimes even Marxists can lose sight of. Uh, liberation theologians are looking for who is being the most marginalized in any society, um, whether it's a capitalist or a communist one. And communists need that. Like they need, uh, you know, people who are helping them uh, find out who's slipping through the cracks, even in supposed liberation movements. So um, without being, you know, antagonistic necessarily to the, the process of liberation, I think liberation theologians and Christians in particular can, I hope anyway, contribute a kind of helpful um, attention to, uh, you know, the outcasts and the poor and despised and that sort of a thing. Hmm. One of the things that I think is so kind of interesting that bears on this, though, is precisely in articulating what does it mean to be a Christian, right? And 
um, one of the things that I kind of appreciated about, particularly, probably at least from what I can, from from what I from what my old research when I did my master's degree was on Latin American liberation theology, or my dissertation mm. was anyway. And Jose Miranda uh, was kind of the most radical of the figures that I looked at. You know, you got Gutierrez and Boff and others, and I mean Camilo Torres maybe as well, since he literally died in the armed struggle. But um, but in terms of like theology, Miranda was pretty radical because this is totally paraphrasing, but he kind of says that God is justice, and if there is no justice on the earth, then that means there is no God, and and it's kind of this almost theology of the future where it's like, but God might exist if justice comes to actually manifest or bear itself on on the planet. And so what I kind of always took from this is that he's opening the door for a very sort of um, existentialist type of understanding of what it means to quote unquote be a Christian. And that in order to be a Christian, it's just based on what you do. And that there is no real like essence maybe of what it means to be a Christian. And so even like what can Christianity offer Marxism is that they can kind of meet, if you will, at that point where they are both practically oriented towards actions that are in contest to oppression, exploitation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so then when you kind of pause, it's never like I am a Christian. It's just like you, you know, we talked about this with, uh, with Peter Rollins, who was a guest on our podcast, you know, this kind of idea that he's like, yeah, sometimes I'm a Christian, you know, like when I help the poor and when I take care of the needy, yeah, then I'm affirming the resurrection. And sometimes I'm not, you know, like when I'm ignoring the homeless person on the street or when I kind of engage in this types of uh, practical activity that is shitty or contrary, if you will, to both the Christian spirit's preferential option for the poor and the communist spirit that is like seeking some sort of contestation or critique of the capitalist mode of production. And I think that there's something maybe kind of there that's like a convergence, you know, that it's just simply about what you do and that maybe there is, maybe we shouldn't concern ourselves so much with identifying some sort of essence of what it means to be a Christian, you know? Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. One one concern I sometimes have is um, uh, Christianity is like a world historical religion. And because that's the case, um, it's never like the best of our hopes, I guess you could say, or like, <laughs> like if you, um, what's the best way to put this? Like when you participate in existing in a, a settler colonial society, like Canada, for instance, um, you're also being a Christian, but it's like bad, <laughs> like mm. you're, do you're doing bad <laughs> yes. Christian things. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's totally. that, that ambiguity that. Christians have to take on, you know, I, um, I affirm what you were saying earlier, Austin, about trying to, you know, hear from these kind of decolonial voices. Um, and my concern sometimes with people who say, yeah, I'm being a Christian when I do what's what's good and right and, and just is that, well, I, you know, I hope that that's true, but also you are being a Christian or you're carrying on certain Christian ways of being unjust in other aspects mm. of our life. And yeah, to, to live in that ambiguity is, is very important so that we don't disavow uh, what's bad about our own or what kind of forms of violence are done in our own traditions. I really like that. Yeah, because you don't want to absolve the signifier of Christianity from these other things because then you end up essentializing the signifier, right? right. And you, uh, yeah, I think I, I actually really like that. I I hadn't thought about that. I guess I, I kind of do have that tendency to essentialize and to absolve it and kind of like almost uh, exalt Christianity as being the word that is the, the uh, indicator of all that is good and that we're always just falling short of it, right? But right. 
but even that is uh, is already too kind of dogmatic, you know? Yeah, there's some great work on this done by um, a theologian named Marika Rose, who wrote a book not too long ago oh, yeah. called um, yeah, Theology, Theology of Failure. Failure. Yeah, it's yeah. a fantastic book, but she attends to that. And so does this guy, mm. um, Anthony Paul Smith, that she draws off of, too. Uh, and they both have this kind of, they use this term called weaponized apophaticism, which I really like, um, which is basically, you know, you, you're you're always negating um, Christianity in such a way that it never has to uh, take responsibility um, for what it has done in the world. And um, yeah, I, you know, for those of us who still mm. want to participate in Christianity, it's important to uh, make sure that we're not doing that. <laughs> uh, mm. Yeah, I think anyway. Yeah, we worked through one of Dan Barber's books uh, on this podcast, and He's kind of in a similar. He yeah, does a lot yeah. of work, obviously, with Anthony, and I don't know if he does work explicit with with Marika, but I know that they run in similar circles. I actually yeah. did uh, Anthony and I. We did graduate school at the same place. He was doing a PhD with the guy who was my master's supervisor, Great. Philip Goodchild. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. Awesome. Yeah, Anthony's work has been really good. I haven't. I know he's done a lot of work recently too on Islam, which is another another thing that I just you know Christians have such a skeptical view of Islam. Right, right. Uh, and and it's so interesting when you kind of have somebody who is uh, a scholar of religion who can kind of bridge that divide as well, and that's just one of those areas that's a total blind spot, I think, in my in my epistemological framework that I think would be so important to kind of consider further. You know, um, not just is there like a, a a radical sense in which Christianity can help us, you know, contest oppression and exploitation and maybe ground us in some sort of normative frameworks. But what about Islam as well? How does that fit into this? How do Christians reconcile the fact that we all kind of come out of this monotheistic Abrahamic set of concerns? And that, I mean, I don't know if you've done much thinking on this, but that for me is just completely outside my wheelhouse, really, you know? Yeah, it's a lot. Um, I mean, much of my graduate work is kind of looking at some of these things, but I, uh, the thing that struck me most or brought this problem home to me in some ways was I, I was at a protest, I don't know, four or five years ago in Toronto, and it was about, um, um, it, it was a water protector uh, protest. And so it was led by indigenous folks trying to really, you know, call the, the country of Canada and, and all people around the world to account for what we're doing to the planet. And um, I was so intrigued because of all the speakers who spoke, um, there was there were many faiths that were explicitly represented. So someone would come up and they would say, you know, as a mm. um, as a member of this nation, I this is what I think and et cetera. Or as a, um, a Muslim person, this is what I, I think. And uh there was one union leader who spoke, um, and whether or not he's a Christian, I don't know, but he didn't appeal to his faith, and he's the only person who didn't mention a, a faith tradition there. So Christianity was not uh, represented at all among these people, and mm. it, it got me thinking because I thought, well, there are actually plenty of, of actually really good um, ecological activists in this city who are Christians, but there was something significant about uh, kind of tacitly recognizing in this context of protest that we're also protesting something about Christianity um, and how Christians have thought about, you know, the, mm. the world around us for, for a long time. So, yeah, all that to say, I think it's important for us to figure out where Christianity does and doesn't show up and, uh, yeah, how to think um, think with and against it if we're <laughs> interested mm. in being part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. That that's kind of a strain of of thought that I don't know that there's a there's an analog in the Protestant or evangelical side. Um, the kind of thinking with but also against strain. What what is it about Catholicism, if if I'm right about this, that 
allows you to do that in a way that's still like can fundamentally hold on to the, the Christian identity. Yeah, I mean, being a Catholic is full of antagonisms. You know, like we, there are many Catholics who think that they don't have the luxury of like, um, you know, like, like, okay, if you're an evangelical, like we were saying earlier, it's just you and the Bible, right? And and you have that kind of simplicity. And so everybody else must be wrong because you have this kind of anchor point. Um, there are people in the Catholic Church who kind of try to do that, but even they can't point to just the Bible. There's a whole weird tradition full of, you know, bizarre people um, that are like saints and, and popes and all the, all the rest. And so to be a Catholic means affirming all kinds of things that you actually don't want to affirm, whether you're mm. like a progressive or a conservative and i think <laughs> that like you know like pope francis like he he'll say things one day and i'm like that's thank you for doing that i'm very mm. glad that you're the pope and then the next day he'll say something about i don't know like trans people or something and it's like buddy like you don't have to do that though you know and mm. the fact is like i go to church every sunday and i pray for pope francis every sunday and you know mm. it's you've you've got to accept and live with all those antagonisms all the time and I, yeah, like I said, people try to deny that or, or cover over it. But I think there's something about just recognizing that it's completely imperfect. Like even if you pretend that it's perfect, you get pissed at all the people who say that it's not. Uh, and nevertheless, you're stuck with them, you know, like they're in the pews next to you. So um, I don't know if that's a, a fundamental difference, but it's certainly in my own experience, having traveled through evangelicalism and Catholicism, um, there's kind of like you just can't deny that uh, it's really hard. It would be extremely hard to maintain a purity narrative about the Catholic Church if you think for any <laughs> any amount of time about it. Yeah, yeah it's, mm. it's interesting that um, not necessarily just in terms of a purity, but something I really always admired about like rabbinic and uh, Judaism is the like, uh, I don't know how the joke goes, something like three rabbis, four opinions. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's <laughs> right. always this kind of constant antagonism and kind of embedded humility about what you can really know and how consistent can you really be and how much of the truth can you really have while still allowing that antagonism to exist within a kind of holistic identity that's consistent. Totally. Um, yeah. And that, that just, I don't know, there's something that I find really esteemable about that, probably because the evangelical circles we swam in and, um, in our early years just absolutely Oh, that was anathema. That that just kind of thing mm-hmm. was evidence of, of uh, of you know untruth. Yeah, there there has, there has to be absolute it, certainty. Yeah, the the evangelical church has to create like a perfect, linear, consistent, almost like logical formula that begins like, from yeah, Genesis. Like, laughably so. Yeah. Right, and and it's so interesting. So, Dean, I sent you this, and then Troy, I know you know about this. And then for the listeners out there, I'm doing a read through of the Bible from now this like post evangelical after years of doing philosophical, political, economic study, whatever. And I'm kind of like returning to because I haven't actually read the Bible in probably about eight nine years. I mean, I've read excerpts and books on the Bible, but I'm talking about just sitting down and reading the Bible, right? And so the goal is to read through it in a year. And I'm in halfway through Genesis, a little halfway through Genesis. And I have been laughing hysterically at, I think, what are some very self-aware rabbinic teachings. I mean, Jacob's name is He Cheats. Jake, the guy whose name gets changed to Israel's name is He Cheats. He's a fucking trickster, man. He lies to Esau. 
you know? He engages in some lies with Laban. Laban's father fucks with him. Like, his wives are like, here, bang my servant because, you know, I'm having like a competition to see who can produce more offspring. Like, I feel like that's really funny. And there's a lot of like unethical things. God is a trickster and Babel when he comes down and is like, well, fuck these humans. I don't want them to coalesce and have a a grand strategy because they'll be able to do anything. I'm going to go down and confuse their tongue. Like, these are all elements of like the trickster God, which I think is a self-aware recognition that there is a sort of tension, that it isn't just this pure ethic, this pure metaphysical, moral consistency that you get in evangelicalism, but that you get this much more paradoxical, kind of confusing element of uh, of the rabbinic style of teaching. And I can almost imagine like some students sitting around going, but wait, teacher, like, are we supposed to lie and like fuck over people so that we can just get our birthright or get our blessing or whatever? And then they're like, ah, no, but this is a perfect point of tension where we can teach, you know? And it's a real interesting kind of paradox or contradiction, no? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think the real strength of um, so many traditions that rely on interpretation um, and put a big a big premium on interpretation uh, is exactly that, you know, e- even if you want to say, if you want to free something and say, well, this is the root text, you know, or, or these scriptures are the scriptures that we're paying attention to, uh, the minute that you have to start talking about them, um, you're already going to, you know, introduce some complications. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate that about um, both uh, the, uh, you know, well, every religious tradition does it whether they admit it or not um but i i appreciate the religious voices who are um capable of kind of affirming it and and driving it home or really leaning into it yeah because it does it creates that point for i mean to use like a either a socratic term or maybe we could even talk about it in hegelian terms but it creates a point for like dialectical revelation or dialectical transformation or dialectical progress or dialectical synthesis, right? Where you can start to say, no, there are these points of tension, but then let's unpack this. Let's engage in an ongoing discussion. Let's engage in an ongoing uh, struggle, you know, which again, Israel means, you know, one who is striven with God and one who is striven with men. That's why Jacob's name is changed. So again, there's almost like something inherent about that dialectical struggle, that is inherent to, I think, the kind of constitutive fabric of this thing that we end up becoming the Christian, or we end up calling the Christian tradition. But I feel like Protestantism oftentimes, in the Orthodox settings at least, loses that, where it does feel like Catholicism is a little bit more comfortable. I mean, you know, I, 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 that's why you have like these Roman encyclicals and these Vatican councils, and maybe there's a sense to try to homogenize, you know, but it, it seems that it's still in a grand historical sense, still working through something uh, as being processual, right? There's this processual element to it. Yeah, I I mean, I should say, like, uh, um, having said all that stuff about how we should own how bad Christianity is, uh, the Catholic Church does do a very bad job (laughs) of affirming (laughs) pluralism a lot, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're responsible for all kinds of, uh, as you said, homogenization is a good word, at least the attempt to do that all around the world. Um, But, you know, like Vatican II, for instance, the big Vatican Council, um, for people that don't know, the Catholic Church had like a big meeting and they decided to um, change how they feel about all kinds of things. Um, that was a uh, that was a huge moment of of affirming that we are a dialogical tradition, and it's actually time to dialogue with the rest of the world. Um, mm. And I remember talking to my dad one time. He lived through that. My dad was born in 1936, so he'd been around. And uh, I asked him what he thought about it, 
And he said, you know, before Vatican II, they all the mass was in Latin, and then after it was in the vernacular mm. in, in English. And he said, yeah, it was like really bizarre, like extremely weird to all of a sudden hear hear all this stuff in English, and there were many other liturgical changes too. Um, but he said uh, he had asked his dad what he felt about all these reforms, and his dad had said. One time he heard that the church was relaxing these restrictions about uh, eating meat on Fridays for like certain groups of people during Lent. And he said, you know, sort of jokingly, but also seriously, well, what are they going to do with all the people in hell who, uh, you know, uh, had already uh, <laughs> broken that prohibition or whatever? And That's like right. there's humor there because it's just no like, take backs. Yeah, yeah. Well, and being a layperson, I think, is actually sort of like it encourages you to have a little bit of ironic distance from what the hierarchy says or does, because, you know, the history of the church is not as neat and tidy as some people Mm. would like it to be. And yeah, you know, at least, like I said, Catholicism doesn't necessarily inculcate that in people. But I think that for me, anyway, it's like incredibly therapeutic having gone through evangelicalism to now be part of a tradition that is, you know, messy um, and can't really hide that very well. Yeah. And I appreciate that you said, Dean, that an important point is everybody or every religious tradition already does this process of interpretation, right? Um, The key is whether or not you're honest about it, you're authentic about it, right? Um, Otherwise you end up with what evangelicals do, right? Which is refuse to ever admit that there's legitimate interpretation going on. Instead, it's just transference from the Holy Spirit, right? Which is absolute, Mm -hmm. certain, and guaranteed. And then you get stuff like, you know, left behind and, um, you know, uh, political organizations that are vying for the, you know, end of days and stuff like that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm. Does, do you think that there that there's just a profoundly different metaphysics of God in both the Protestant tradition, let's say particularly the American evangelical strain of it, and uh, the Catholic tradition? Like, like I don't know. I was actually going to ask you, Dean, what you think about this. You know, you said you go on Sundays and and you actually pray for Pope Francis. Um, you know, what is the God, or who is the God, or how is the God that you are praying to? Is it a like a, a god that is processual? Is it a god that is that checks all the boxes of typical proper theology proper, you know, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, et cetera, et cetera? Um, is God a being? Is it like vital force, Elon Vital? Like how do you conceive of the metaphysics of God? Because and it depends on the Protestant tradition, but like we at least I spent definitely more time, and I think Troy did as well, in the Reformed tradition. So the Calvinist Lutheran tradition, where really it's God's will that becomes preeminent, right? Um and, you know, there is no free will because God has chosen everything, determined everything from eternity past. And, you know, there's this kind of stasis about the essence of God. But then I got really into like process theology and process philosophy, which is probably explains a lot why I'm like a Deleuzian and Bergsonian now. Uh, and maybe even why I was attracted to Sartre for doing, you know, uh, previous research and whatnot. But th- this idea of, of process is, is something that I'm more attracted to now. But how do you conceive of God, uh, like metaphysically? Yeah, dang. I am not a theologian, I should say that off the bat. I try to be yeah. theologically literate, but I'm not a theologian. Um, sure. And, I, you know... <laughs> this is why you should be a Protestant, Dean, because then everyone's a theologian. <laughs> well, this is what's so great about being a Catholic, though, is we don't have to think about this stuff as much. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I when I was an evangelical, I felt so concerned about getting that question exactly right. Like, who's yeah. out there, and who's listening, and how, and... Yeah, you know, it, it, it's obsessive in, in some ways. Um, yes. But now I... I feel just, seen. <laughs> yeah. 
I feel more chilled out about it. I don't know. Like, mm. who, who's God? I guess Jesus is supposed to be God. And, you know, you're like, you hear that story every Sunday, different bits and pieces of it when the gospel is read. And you're just supposed to think about that. Like, all, all we know about Jesus or mm. about God on earth is what's revealed in Jesus Christ in terms of Christianity. And I think that, like there's something really provocative about that. Like when you hear Jesus doing something weird or saying something that you wouldn't expect, it's like, okay, well (laughs) that's supposed to be some kind of revelation of who God is. So I'll think about that for a bit, but I'm not gonna, or at least I, I don't have the, the skills to kind of systematize it. I will say though, um, Mm. talking about, uh, being reformed. So the school I go to that you mentioned at the top of the show, uh, the Institute for Christian studies comes out of a a Dutch reformed tradition and, Mm. It's a very idiosyncratic one, but um, there's a professor here named uh, James Oltheis, O-L-T-H-U-I-S, and uh, he's an incredibly beautiful person and, and theologian, but um, he is his whole thing all the time is just God is love. Whatever you think about anything <laughs> else, God is yes. love. And right. uh, what that means is like complicated. He himself also is like a practicing um, psychotherapist, so he knows quite a bit about the, you know, the dark sides of love and all that too but mm. i really feel like that simplicity and complexity of saying that god is love is kind of when i when i get around to thinking about it that's what i think about <laughs> mm. now this is an underrated aspect i think of the anxiety that that evangelicalism can induce in you, you No, know, evangelicals like to say that catholics believe in work salvation and they believe in right grace or faith salvation right um but then you do a little bit of work in epistemology and philosophy and you realize you know, belief is actually really hard to get right. Mm. In fact, mm. it'd be a lot easier to just do some set of like works rather than actually get the belief right. Because then you got to get all the content of the belief right, including <laughs> the nature of the God you're believing in, the, what it means to believe in something. There's a whole lot of stuff you've got to get right uh, to feel like you're in a good place before God under evangelicalism. So there, there's, there's definitely a lot more um, work to be done, I think, there than there is in uh, other traditions. Yeah, I should say, too, uh, it just occurred to me, I also feel very strongly about God being a a judge or having some kind of power of judgment. Uh, Again, like what that means, I I don't really know, but I feel Mm. so incensed by how the the world operates sometimes. And I feel very like, um, you know, I guess at the end of my rope about like what what to do with it. And I come from a family that's like it was it was fine growing up. Like my, my parents are really great people. Um, but it was really in spite of kind of where they had been. And, um, yeah, I, I won't go into all of that, but like, I, I feel, you know, I, I look around at things that have happened to people that I love and care about and things that are still happening to them. And I just think like, none of this stuff is going to get accounted for on this side of eternity. So like, I really Mm. take comfort thinking that maybe at the end, there's going to be somebody who, you know, figures it all out like this person has got to you know spend a few more years in purgatory or whatever i don't know but like there's somebody on the other end who's who's counting everything up and keeping it on the scale and even my own like i i would like to be judged for the things that i have done wrong and i i want to have a chance of i guess being held account accountable for those things as painful as it might be because i i do think there's something so so frustrating about the mm. you know the the inability to see justice done in the world today and I, I feel strongly that if there's a god on the other side i hope that god is able to judge the situation with with truth and figure out what to do about it and i hope that that's the case do you draw much from the mystic tradition at all 
uh, like even like more contemporary, like Henri de Lubac or uh, Henri Nouwen or anyone like that. Like, and then of course historically there are obviously many, 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 many throughout the centuries as well. But do you do you kind of draw positively from that at all? Um, there are some kind of mystical voices I'm really invested in. Um, I really enjoyed learning a lot about this um, woman, Marguerite Perret. Um, she had been uh, killed as a heretic, unfortunately, um, but she was an amazing person and wrote a, a, a short book called um, The Mirror of, of Simple Souls. And her work basically got uh, picked up by Meister Eckhart. And everything mm. that you think is cool that Eckhart ever said is actually from Marguerite Perret. It's true. You heard it here wow. first. Um, <laughs> she uh, deserves to be uh, recognized for her contribution. Um, so I'm really invested in her, or at least I was for a while. But in terms of contemporary mystics, um, one of my favorite and to this day most significant theologians for me is Ernesto Cardinal, a Nicaraguan priest. Um, he was a revolutionary during the Sandinista revolution. He took up a spot mm. in the revolutionary government, um, and was famously disciplined by Pope John Paul II, and then also famously rehabilitated by Pope Francis just a couple of years ago. But, um, mm. he's a incredible poet. He's one of Nicaragua's most famous poets and his vision of just how the world works and how God works and all that kind of stuff. Like when I'm feeling like I need to have a, you know, some kind of like spiritual moment or something, or like I'm feeling dry, like I go to Cardinal and just figure it out that way. That that always kind of brings me back up. I'm so excited that you gave, I'm scribbling down resources. Um, yeah, that sounds amazing. I mean, do yeah. you think- I never heard any of these people. Yeah, I, I hadn't heard the bit about, uh, what is it, Marguerite Perrette? Yeah, Perrette, P-O-R-E-T-E. I mean, I've read the shit out of Eckhart, and I love me some Meister Eckhart, but um, I did not know anything about this at all. Yeah, she deals with the works in divine love. Okay, that's amazing. I have I have one more question uh, that I just wanted to ask you about, like Pope Francis and liberation theology. Mm -hmm. um, so Pope Francis, you talk about how he sort of reinstates Ernesto Cardinal, mm -hmm. and so many people, like even just my friends who aren't religious. I was talking with a friend of mine the other day, and uh, I mentioned something about liberation theology and Pope Francis. Or and no, I mentioned liberation theology, and she was like, "Oh, is that the thing that Pope Francis is?" Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that people kind of just they tie those two together. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of feel like that Pope Francis he has some social leanings that I would say are progressive, um, that are definitely radical from, you know, kind of certain compared to like Benedict, right? Mm -hmm. But do, do we think that he's a liberation theologian? Like, does he fit within that camp? Or, I mean, obviously it can be a broad umbrella term. And so there's a spectrum. I mean, obviously there's a difference between Leonardo Boff and Jose Miranda as well, right? Um, but what do you think about how he sits within the, the tradition of liberation theology? Yeah, I mean, the history of liberation theology in the church is a really complicated one because it emerges after that, or or alongside at least, that thing I was talking about earlier in Vatican II, where the church kind of opened itself to this dialogue with, with the world. And uh, to make an extremely long story short, uh, after Vatican II happened, um, Pope John Paul II, uh, his papacy in large part was trying to put the genie back inside the bottle in some ways. Um, mm. uh, and he uh, appointed Cardinal Ratzinger, who would become Pope Benedict, to be basically the head of theology police, uh, more or less. 
and the ink that otherwise known as the Inquisition. Yeah, well, essentially, <laughs> um, and the two of them. I mean, they were extremely suspicious of liberation theology, and it was yeah. for many reasons. Um, some may be reasonable, but most of them, I think, not. And uh, there's been lots of good journalism about this uh, that had happened at the time, um, about how they, uh, these two and, and others, uh, you know, wielded a lot of institutional power in the church to um, quash liberation theology. And they couldn't because it wasn't just a bunch of theologians. It was a mass mm. movement of, of people. Uh, you know, in, in Brazil, there were uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of base communities, you know, like actual mm -hmm. people getting together, um, living this stuff out. And by the time it got to somebody like Boff or something like that, or many of the bishops in Brazil who were quite radical, uh, they were responding to what was happening in front of them just as much mm. as they were trying to feed it. And I think seeing liberation theology as a mass movement helps us to understand Pope Francis because... Living in Argentina, having lived through a dictatorship and having had a, a complicated role there himself, um, he too couldn't help but be influenced by liberation theology. And uh, by the time he becomes the Pope, uh, he is actively, I mean, this is a strong interpretation, but he is undoing many of the judgments that had been made by Benedict and John Paul II on people like mm. Ernesto Cardinal, you know, he's rehabilitating people like Gutierrez and Boff, making them institutionally uh, affirmed people. And that's huge. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I, I, we all, all of us on the left want Pope Francis to be further left than he is. But at the end of the day, he is a politician in many respects. And he's very mm. savvy at it. And he knows that he can't just come out, even if he wanted to say that Ernesto Cardinal was right the whole time, he could never say that. Um, without mm. causing like a schism in the church. And so what he is doing is saying Ernesto Cardinal is a priest in good standing with the church. And that means people like me can go to someone like Cardinal and say, hey, look, this guy is he's fine. Like what he says about mm. Marxism and stuff like that, like we can talk about it and disagree and all that stuff within the church. But you have to take it seriously. Um, so, yeah, you know, the Pope Francis is a product of liberation theology. He's not the sum total of it, um, and he's he's one strand of it, but uh, he is opening the door for the rest of us to continue that process that could have been shut down uh, even further if we had gotten a very different pope. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Troy, have you done much thinking about uh, Pope Francis? No, no, not really at all. Um, yeah, me either. I feel like when he when he was... God, I'm, what's, what's it called when you first become... You're not like ordained, elected, chosen, yeah. elected. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's first elected, I remember it being like all the progressives uh, were like super excited about it, right? Because he was supposed to be the the one who kind of comes out of this Latin American liberation theology tradition, and um, and then I've kind of just maybe I've just read some some more of like the uh, kind of critical think pieces and stuff like that. And I haven't paid much attention. Obviously my work and my interests have kind of like shifted away from theology proper or even from like the, uh, the confessional church more generally. And it's only been more recently, I'd say within the last year that I've started to kind of come back to the fold. Maybe the prodigal son is starting to have a stirring. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd be really interested in doing more research into this. Like, you know, I don't know about a lot of the stuff that he is undoing. Is there, is there like a, like like a website that's like Francis's <laughs> website where he's like, here are my declarations and decrees. Like, how do you keep up with this other than just kind of being in that world? 
Yeah, I mean, there is a Vatican website where you can. There read. is okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and it posts like everything, like not you know everything from his encyclicals to like a speech he gives in front of a bunch of fishermen in Italy. Like that was oh, something cool. that was okay. posted recently. But um, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of amazing Catholic journalists who are working really hard. Um, there's a, a well, America Magazine that I write for. They have some great reporters who do this. There's also uh, the National Catholic Reporter which is historically, I think, the best place you can go for this kind of stuff. Um, if you if you were interested in the background of uh, the the policing of liberation theology, which I think really is important to get like the context for why Francis is more radical in some ways than he might seem, uh, there's an incredible book I'm reading right now called People of God by a journalist named Penny Lerneau, L-E-R-N-O-U-X. Um, you can read it for free on like archive.org, but... Um, it, it's a whole account of how liberation theology emerges and how it's attempted to be shut down. Mm. Um, but in any case, like once you have an idea of, of that history, you can really detect the subtleties. Like when Pope Francis rehabilitates Cardinal, it's a huge deal because one of the most famous things that happened in the history of liberation theology is uh, after the Sandinista revolution, which Pope John Paul II did not like <laughs> and was very clear mm. about, uh, despite the fact that it was an incredibly Christian um, thing project uh he came to nicaragua got off the plane and there's a famous photo of him um ernesto cardinal is kneeling before him to get a blessing and instead mm. of getting a blessing uh pope john paul wags his finger at him and mm. he then forced him to take a choice him and his brother who had also he was also a priest and in the government um they had to make a choice to either stay in the revolutionary government or quit the priesthood and uh, Cardinal stayed, or Ernesto Cardinal stayed. And hmm. uh, that was in open defiance of what Pope John Paul II had said. So for Francis to then say, um, no, you're, you're okay now, uh, now that Cardinal is, you know, quite old, um, is a very hmm. significant thing and something that, yeah, look, Pope Francis has a lot of reactionary opinions. I don't want to, like, give the impression that he's, uh, sure, sure. you know, of like, course. and I, I don't affirm those at all. But on these kinds of issues, it's important to see his historical kind of nuance. Sure. Was, was Cardinal excommunicated? Not technically, but not not. I don't know. <laughs> like, okay. um, yeah. many many theologians were silenced, for instance. Because um, I know Miranda, Miranda, for example, was excommunicated. Yeah, many of them were. Um, Cardinal, he he wasn't allowed to be a priest anymore, that, which was heartbreaking okay. for him yeah. um, and yeah. for many in Nicaragua. Um, but yeah. Hmm. Troy, you got any final thoughts or questions or anything like that so we can let... Dean enjoy his evening or, or go to bed, whatever it is that he's going to do. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering when the uh, prestige HBO drama uh, adapting people <laughs> of God's going to be, because that sounds awesome. It would make a good one. Yeah, who who would play like the Pope and Cardinal? Can Benicio del Toro be in it? Because I just fucking love him so much. <laughs> well, just the other day I tweeted, uh, I, Fry Beto is one of my heroes. If you don't know who he is... Um, you have a great evening of Googling ahead of you. He's a Brazilian priest. Um, famously had this great dialogue with Fidel Castro that was published as Fidel and Religion. But um, he was he's a Brazilian Dominican priest. He suffered under dictatorship. Just an incredible liberation theologian. But I found this photo of him as a younger man. And uh, he looks exactly like Fred Armisen. And I, <laughs> I really want that to happen. I want a Fred oh, Armisen no. biopic of Fry Beto. Uh, it would have to perfect. be like this weird, like indie, awkward yeah. uh, comedy. That I'm not sure that would work. Or maybe it would be like the tonally brilliant 
for doing He'd be it into it. Fry Beto, he's got a great sense of humor. I think he could do it. <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Well, Dean, um, thank you so much for coming on, man. Uh, this is just yeah. like I... Like I said, I I have felt more of like a stirring lately. I'd say within the last year or two <laughs> to kind of not neglect, if you will, my theology. I mean, I spent so many fucking years in theological training and in like the spiritual tradition and in spiritual pursuits and then kind of went the philosophy route and political economy route. And one of the things that Troy and I kind of lament quite often on this show is is how we feel like that there's oftentimes something lacking mm. in contemporary popular politics. And... And I don't know if it's just because I don't have the resources to find something else, but my mind automatically says, well, there's like a spirituality that's lacking or there's a metaphysics that's lacking or there's like a, a normative framework, like a meta-ethical norm that is lacking or something. And and I feel like that there is a sense in which I'm, I'm – I don't know if I'm returning to Rome, so to speak, but uh, that there is like a, a, a turning my eyes towards heaven, so to speak, or mm. towards the kingdom or towards a messianic vision or a prophetic imagination and – um, so it's just, it's, it's really been interesting for me to kind of think through these things and consider these things. And I draw a lot, I'm for people listening, their podcast is amazing. They mentioned Marika Rose. They did an interview with her a couple of, what, like a month ago when her book first came out. Yeah. Um, and they did some funny episodes on Halloween that were actually really good too. <laughs> um, but it's a great podcast. Check out the Magnificast, but thanks so much for coming on and like, I don't know, giving me more ammunition to, uh, complicate my own journey at the moment. Yeah, thanks so much to both of you for having me on. Again, I'm really sorry that Matt couldn't be here. Um, he's the the funnier one of the two of us um, <laughs> next time. But uh, yeah, it, it's great to be here. And um, I always say, like, uh, being a Christian is great. Um, at the end of the day, like, whatever gets you out in the streets, <laughs> you know, like, for me, <laughs> it, it helps to go to mass on Sunday. And that makes me feel like I can take on the rest of the world. And that's where I go. But, you know, Everybody I organize with, um, I'm usually one of the few Catholics in the room, and I'm I'm happy to be with them and uh, happy to be at church too. So, yeah, um, <laughs> I'll see you out there, yeah. I guess. <laughs> That's right, man. That's right. I think we had a we had a guy on our our podcast early on, and he's actually my old basketball coach from high school. But his name's Tom Airy, and he was talking a lot about the kind of like loneliness of how, because it comes out of an evangelical background, the loneliness of kind of having a more radical social gospel turn. And um, like I was a part of a social justice church in LA, the last that I was living there in Pasadena. And it, the, those communities are few and far between, you know? And I feel like a lot of times it can be isolating if you still have that Christian bent because the Christian communities aren't radical enough and then the radical communities aren't Christian enough. And then you kind of feel like you're torn oftentimes. And I, it's, I think it's so important to find those 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 moments when you can find nourishment when you do feel like you're kind of floating between spaces you know yeah yeah well on that note i'm sorry to keep dragging out the ending here but no 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 uh, it's good i would say i mean i spend a lot of time with people who are members of the communist party of canada and they come out of a a communist tradition and of course most of them are not um, religious um a couple but uh because of the tradition that they have they're not only are they actually quite aware of liberation theology, but they're they're totally affirming of like being a person of faith in those spaces. Um, and I know that the same is true of the CPUSA, the Communist Party USA in, in Tennessee. And I also know that the Communist Party in Australia has an incredibly deep history of um, Christian people being involved. And I, I, my guess would be um, you might find some uh, 
fellow travelers or or people who could at least kind of um, hear you out or or whatever um, without feeling need or compulsion to you know mm. hide that part of yourself or not not find it. Um, in any case, that's been helpful to me in in my own kind of geography. That's great. Yeah, yeah. My eyes and ears are open for those communities. So cool, cool. Well, sick man. So where can people find you on the internet so they can track down your work and uh, your podcast and all that other good stuff? Yeah. Um, so the podcast has a Twitter at the Magnificast. Um, my Twitter handle is there and so is Matt's. Uh, but my Twitter handle is Dean Detloff, D-E-A-N-D-E-T-T-L-O-F-F. And I post everything usually on Twitter. <laughs> so that's the place to find it. <laughs> right on. Well, sick man, we'll enjoy your evening, and uh, hopefully we can catch up with you at another point in the future. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on, dude. Yeah, thank you. All right, sick. Well, again, thank you so much for to Dean for coming on and chatting with us. Uh, tons of references, tons of stuff to think about. Got any questions out there? You can get in contact with him. And uh, definitely tune into his podcast. They uh, do tons of great episodes, and they're pretty frequent as well with releasing episodes. So they do really good work. Um, but now we got to switch to our final segment for our episode, which is the Sticky Leaves. This is where one of us gets to recommend something that is giving us hope or meaning in a world that might be potentially devoid of such things. So, Troy, what is giving you joy? I made a rhyme. You did. I can't believe this is the first time you've made that rhyme. Seriously. Um... So my sticky leaves this week, it's going to be a simple one. I wonder if you even know about this. Um, but my favorite record of all time is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. And I just recently um, read a couple interviews with uh, the guitarist of the band and some podcasts of interviews with him talking about the 20th anniversary of this album. And so I wanted to bring it up because I'm, I'm not sure if I'd ever talked about this record or this band on the podcast because um, they're not the most popular band in the world. Can I guess? Um, Can I guess? Yeah. Is it Mr. Bungle? It is. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, yes, Mr. Yes, Bungle's yes. Ca- album California came out in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's the it's the weirdest they're the weirdest band that's ever existed. Like up there with like <laughs> the Residents and. Uh, some of the other like weirdest bands you can you can possibly think of. Um, and I would encourage anybody out there who has never heard of Mr. Bungle or, or hears that name and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Um, to check out this record specifically because it's definitely their least weird record. It's the most um, digestible and uh, approachable of their records. Mm-hmm. It was their final record. Um, it's been described before as Beach Boys on Acid. Um, which mm. I think is a, a wonderful way of thinking about it. Um, so this album, California, is a record that I had this wonderful history with this whole thing because I was a big fan of the band Faith No More, which I think anybody who like knows about early 90s like alternative rock and alternative metal knows about them. They had the famous song Epic, um, which was like one of the first examples of like rap rock, unfortunately, in the world. And mm. Faith No More's vocalist Mike Patton was before he was ever in Faith No More was in Mr. Bungle. Um, Faith No More was his side project, uh, which would make, bring like chagrin to anybody who uh, was a fan of Faith No More because they thought about it as being the opposite. Um, and Mr. Bungle was absolutely more, much more experimental um, than Faith No More to the point where 
Mr. Bungle actually got signed to Warner Brothers Records when Faith No More hit it big in hmm. 1990. And uh, Mr. Bungle released three uh, records on Warner Brothers, which are the three weirdest records to ever have been released by a major label. Absolutely. And it's wonderful because Warner Brothers basically gave them a guaranteed deal and spent tons of money making these records, which sold nothing hmm. uh, at the time, at least. And so these records would never have been made if not for having been on Warner Brothers because they're incredibly intricate, uh, especially the last one, California. In fact, California is such a strange record because it's so unapproachable and so experimental. And yet there's points in the record um, where there are 70 tracks uh, on a single song uh, and Hmm. analog recorded, analog like tape recorded. So uh, one of the interviews I was talking about that I was reading recently that, that made me want to talk about this was on the website faithnomorefollowers.com with the guitarist of Mr. Bungle, Trace Ruins, who's one of my favorite musicians of all time. And um, he talks about the recording process for this record and how absolutely batshit insane it was. Um, so go read that article if you want to hear about some insane recording techniques for how they were able to, they had to like splice together um, different soundboards from um, different studios just to get enough tracks for some of these uh, songs to be recorded. Um, but uh, yeah, Mr. Bungle's California. It's my favorite record of all time. I go back to it and, and hear new things every single time that I listen to it. Cause it's that intricate and that uh, well-developed. If you want a, an easier intro to the band, listen to the song sweet charity. If you want some of the crazier, moments and to get into that that sort of intrigues you listen to the song none of them knew they were robots or ours <laughs> merienda um those are some of the great ones and i should add trace spruance who's the guitarist of the band um is behind some of the lyrics and some of the more some of the crazier songs which are some of his compositions uh, and he's very philosophically inclined so he's got lots of like futurist and posthumanist uh, themes mm. running throughout a lot of the lyrics, which are not easy to decipher, but um, they're very fun if you uh, enjoy reading um, any of that kind of like uh, liter- philosophical or quasi-philosophical literature. Mm. I should add also that in addition to that, uh, that guy, Trey Spruance, his other band that he's been working on for about 20 years now is Secret Chiefs 3, who's another one of my favorite bands. And they are all- also an absolutely incredible band. Um, he's really into like Middle Eastern uh, and we, we say Middle Eastern, but we mean like the kind of uh, modes you would hear in just non, non-Western non music. It's probably a better way mm. of thinking about it. And he incorporates a lot of uh, rhythms and modes from non-Western music into rock-oriented instruments and electronics in ways that I think are, are really, really fun, especially if you've become a bit bored with kind of grid-patterned 4-4 Western rhythms um, mm-hmm. and, you know, basic 12-tone stuff. So... If you get sick of Western music, but you really like rock music, check out Secret Chiefs 3. You might get something that uh, whets some of your appetite that hasn't been wet before. Let me ask you this. What is it about, like, I don't even know if I have an album that I could say is my favorite album. How can you be so committed to a singular album? I don't know, man. I think there's something about just understanding. It's like thinking about a, like, a, like your best friend. Like, this mm. is the album that means the most to me. And it's just very clear to me. Like I have, I have three records that are just by far the most important to me in the world. Mr. Bungle's California, Radiohead's OK Computer, and Sonic Youth's Daydream Nation. 
Mm. Like, no doubt, those are the records that would be on Desert Island with me that I would listen to forever and ever. How do you not have that? Yeah, I don't even know if I have that. You know? Um, You're just a polygamist. That's the thing. It, it, it's you true. Want, you want to have, am. like, your dalliances. Yeah, I know. And I think that's why it's hard for me. But here's the weird thing. Like, if someone put a gun to my head and they were like, you can only listen to one one group for the rest of your life, who would it be? And this is such a cliche answer, but it would be the Beatles. But the reason is because... I grew up with just that as the soundtrack of my youth. You know, Saturday mornings at my mom's house, before I went to my dad's house, I went to my dad's house on the weekend, so usually, sometimes it was Friday night, but most of the time it was Saturday morning that I'd go see him. Saturday morning was jazz at my mom's house, and then when I would get to my dad's house, it was like Beatles, classic rock, so Who, Zeppelin, but then also like New Wave stuff, Oingo Boingo, Tears for Fears kind of shit, because that was my stepmom. My dad was more like the rock guy, but Beatles was the thing that was always on. And like for me, I just my music education went through the Beatles, as I think it has with so many people of a particular generation, right? Which is going to be really interesting because subsequent generations, I don't think are going to have that, you know, like, like maybe the Zoomers, they know the Beatles, but because their parents are like Gen Xers and maybe even like the older millennials, what's their music education going to be? It's going to be really interesting to see they're not going to have that like the hegemon of the Beatles being the quote unquote greatest band in the world. Right. It's going to be really interesting to see, but I, so I, I, think I kind I think of there'll have still be a lot of people that use Spotify to, to go back. Yeah. I've actually found a surprising number of, of young people through teaching that, that know a lot of about music history more than I did at the same age. Um, and I thought I was pretty far ahead sure. at that same age. Sure. So um, I'm hopeful that there's still going to be a, a vanguard of people who are into that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so like the Beatles, I could say as a group, but if you ask me like a singular album, like, I don't know. I mean, Abbey Road is the one that sings to my soul the most. Um, of course, that's not the cool one, right? Um, Abbey Road's but, pretty damn cool. I mean, I think Abbey Road's <laughs> great, but you know, it's not the White Album and, you know, that's- The White Album is the best one. I'm that's what everyone, yeah. If you're a music lover, you have to say the White Album or you're like, <laughs> you're you're a basic bitch. Well, I'm just a basic yeah. bitch, I guess. You also, okay? you also have to say Ripper Soul's underrated. Hard Day's yeah. Night is my favorite, bro. And, Actually, and that Sergeant Pepper's is overrated. You have to say that. Sergeant Pepper's is overrated. Right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> here's the, here's the like thing, that, though, dude. Yeah, There's a different. I think that, that the idea of a Desert Island album and the most important albums in your life are not extensionally equivalent. Like, true, true, true. Totally. Th- they're different questions. And I think when people talk about Desert Island, they usually mean what's the most important to you. But it's a clever way of getting at that. But they obviously they have different outcomes because talking about Desert Island, you're going to have to think about what am I going to get sick of quicker, right? Like right. that matters. And any pop music's not going to make it <laughs> at that point because you're going to get sick of the hell of that shit. Um, also, probably no metal because <laughs> um, you're going to get sick of that shit. But see, that's uh, why, like, if it does it have to be a singular album or does it have to be, a, like, can it be a group? Yeah. So maybe you're looking for the more diverse group and the bigger output, which is not the same thing as what's the most important. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th- I do think that you have to, it's a, I think it's a more important question. Um, like what Henry Rollins talks about, like on your first set, you've got to ask, like, what are your five most important albums and like five most important books? He has a great stand up mm. special on that. You should go listen to that out there on uh, YouTube. Okay. Henry Rollins' uh, first date or something like that. But um, okay. yeah, if, if that's the question where you want to get at, like, who is this person? What can I know about this person's soul by asking one question? Like that's mm. the question, right? What's the, what are the most important albums in your life and why are they important to you? Like, you can ask that and get a lot out of uh, what kind of person someone is. Mm. 
Yeah. Also, if they yeah. thought too much about it, like I have, huge red flag. <laughs> Run the fuck away. <laughs> uh, uh, this person's neurotic. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, that's sick, man. Yeah, I mean, I have attempted to listen to Mr. Bungle, but I got to be honest, I don't even think I've actually spent much time. I think I like listened to it. And I was like, holy shit, I got to be in the right frame of mind for this. So. <laughs> it's not the kind of music you can listen to and not pay attention to. That's for sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, fuck it. That'll be my soundtrack for the rest of the day then, as it usually is when you recommend music for Sticky Leaves. <laughs> Hope your rest of your day is full of like uh, cocaine. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read the Bible and re- uh, listen to Mr. Bungle. That's a chemical admixture I don't want to know what the product of is. Yeah, I'm very curious how like my consumption of information or like uh, any sort of like pursuit that isn't musical is influenced by the different music that I listen to. Like if I'm listening to like hardcore music or post-hardcore music, how does that affect if I'm reading the Gospels? <laughs> <laughs> What's going to be your music choice when you're reading the genealogies? Uh, I don't, it's gotta be like spoken word, maybe <laughs> Gil Scott Heron. Yeah, Gil I don't Scott. know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. All right, sweet. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Owls at Dawn. Thanks again to Dean for coming on and chatting with us. Go check out his podcast, check out his work. And uh, you know where to find us, Twitter, Insta. You can email us, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that is pretty much it as uh, we're running kind of long here. Yeah, man, unless there's anything else you want to say. Just one more thing, dude. Oh, what is it? Das Verdania, Mary Costas.